seated. Second reading from Luke chapter 23, here verses 50 to 56. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how this body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. You pray with me. Father, as we think about your word and as we think about what we've just read, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, open our hearts now to hear uh, what you want us to hear and allow us to see what you want us to see as we meditate on these things, as we just take just a small portion of what can be drawn from these texts and think about it in light of what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are, uh, there's a whole genre of movies that are made about real-life events, uh, events where you already know the ending, which is a particular challenge for a director because the, often a, a storyteller will use the elements of surprise, the element of the unknown, to keep the audience uh, going, to provide a degree of, of, of tension in the, in the midst of the story. Now, specifically, I'm thinking about stories where, you're cre- where the, the director is cr- trying to create a sense of, of desperation uh, to get people to feel how dire the situation is, the darkness of the moment. That's particularly hard when the audience already knows how the story will ultimately turn out. All right, for example, a movie that I was uh, thinking about uh, just over the last couple of weeks, have you ever seen the movie Darkest Hour? Uh, It's a a movie where Gary Oldman, uh, who actually was nominated for Best Actor at Academy Award, uh, plays uh, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill in May 1940. That's when the movie's set, May 1940, when the direction of World War II rests on whether the British government will decide to negotiate terms of peace with Adolf Hitler or fight, knowing that in either case, perhaps, it might mean the end of the, the British Empire as they know it. And it's very dramatic. It's very emotional. But here's, here's the thing. If you know anything about history, even as you're watching it, you know what happens, right? The British decide to fight in the end. The Americans do eventually enter into the war. The Nazis are ultimately defeated, and the darkness over Europe eventually lifts. And interestingly, at least to me, the power and the drama of the story, as it's told, is not so much despite the fact that you know the end, It is because you know the end that you feel the power of the narrative as it moves through the story. right, see this, and this is my point. There is a tendency, I think, at times to conduct a Good Friday service trying to pretend as if we don't know the end, right? That we don't know what happens on Sunday, right? That it would somehow be like a spoiler or, or perhaps disrespectful to read back into the story of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, right? That we should almost try to forget that we know the ending. Now, to be sure, there's a somber tone to what we just read. It should be treated with with respect. But my main goal tonight, in just these couple of minutes, is to show you that that isn't the only thing the gospel writers were trying to do when they tell you this story. 
My main goal is to reflect on the fact that the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Jesus is a story where we see, not after the fact, but even in the midst of it, humanity's hope. Now, surely we should acknowledge the darkness. But because we know the end of the story, we must never read into that darkness, fear and despair, ever again. Even if it may have in reality been felt by some of the people then, we can't read it any other way because we know the ending. So here's what I want to do tonight. This here's what I want, you to, I want you to do. I want you to do three things by the end of the night. I want you to acknowledge the darkness. We will start there. But then I want you to see the light, and I want you to behold the glory. Now, first, let's acknowledge the darkness. I don't want you to misunderstand me. You have to start here. You do have to acknowledge the darkness. Look, I'm wearing dark suit, gray shirt, right? I get it. We're not just talking about, we're not, we're not just talking about something that we just like, you know, oh, it's no big deal. No, we're talking about death here. It's a serious thing. And not just any death, we're talking about the death of Jesus. Jesus, who had spent almost every moment of the last three years with this group of friends who just witnessed him being betrayed by the Jewish leaders and executed by the Roman authorities. Horrific things were being done to him. Jesus, who, who all these friends had come to believe was the true hope for Israel, even if they didn't totally get the whole Messiah thing and everything that it meant, and they didn't get it all. But even, even without understanding it fully, Jesus was still the one in whom they had been placing their hope. They had been following him. They had, in many cases, they had left everything, right? A death like this was horrific, crucifixion, when it happened to anyone, but particularly when it's a person that you know and you love, and even more particularly when it's a person in whom you had invested a significant portion of your life. Now, there was a real sense of darkness there that you have to acknowledge, a spiritual darkness, Now, we're also talking about a quite literal darkness, aren't we? That's what Luke tells us in verse 44. From about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And this is real darkness, right? Not just some metaphor about it being a really, really sad day. No, this is real darkness. We know it, actually, from historical references from other sources. Around the year 200, Tertullian, an early church Uh, writer, told his Roman readers that he was writing to, he said, this wonder, talking about the darkness, is related in your own annals and preserved in your own archives to this day. The Romans had written about it, he said. Go look it up. Other ancient writers, Origen, Eusebius, early Christian writers, right? They quote a Roman historian, his name was Phleglon of Tralles, who described an extraordinary event of darkness that happened just around the time of the crucifixion, right? Now, now, it happened, and it had to be supernatural, a divine intervention into, into human events, right? How do we know that? Well, it, it, lasted for, it lasted for three hours. Lots of people will try to say, like, well, it must have been a solar eclipse. Well, it was a, the sun was eclipsed in some way, but not a solar eclipse in the way that we understand it. A solar eclipse lasts only a couple of minutes. And besides the fact, right, a solar eclipse, right, doesn't happen when there's a full moon, and Passover always happens then moon would have been on the wrong side of the earth. So it had to be something supernatural, a miracle. But what does it mean? Ah, that's the question. Well, there's several ways that darkness is used in the Bible. Just go back and think about it. Look at what the Old Testament has to say about darkness. It is a theme. First, it's, it's sometimes used as a symbol of evil, right? That was certainly happening on Good Friday. Remember back in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, the mob comes to arrest Jesus in the garden, and and Jesus tells them, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He's saying, what's Jesus talking about? He's not, 
the hour of darkness. He's not saying that, like, you know, well, it's nighttime after all. No, that was obvious. No, what he was saying was that this is the hour of evil, where profound evil was being done, and so it seemed evil had the, the upper hand. Now, darkness is also a symbol of sorrow and grief. Right? We talked, if you were here on Sunday this past week, we talked about how so much of the account of Jesus' crucifixion is a direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Well, here's another example of that. If you go back to the prophet Amos in chapter 8, Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, Amos writes, and on that day, what day? Well, this day. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. That's exactly what's happening here. Darkness descends. It's a day of great grief. Now, darkness, though, third, darkness is also a symbol of judgment, specifically divine judgment. For example, another prophecy, this time the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 15. A day of wrath is that day, he says, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of wrath, characterized by darkness. And that's exactly what's happening here. Darkness descends, it's a day of judgment. Now, there's the question, though, the interesting question, who's being judged? If judgment is happening, who's the recipient of this darkness? Well, who's the one that's on the cross? Jesus, right? right? He's the one experiencing the darkness of God's judgment. God's justice, the justice that we deserve, being poured out on Him. So it's a sad day. Right? It, is a, it, is a, it, is a, it is a day of mourning, and it is also a day of wrath. It's a dark day. Don't misunderstand me. Right? You have to start there. Before you get to the light, you have to acknowledge the darkness. Now, that same principle, by the way, is true for your own life, your own personal life. Right? If you're caught up in a, if you're caught up in, in a, in a crime or you hurt someone, or you're struggling with some kind of destructive habit, right? There's nothing that's helped by pretending that things are better than they are. You have to start with the extent of the darkness. Everyone will tell you that the, that the starting point for forgiveness, the starting point for, for real change in your life is to first acknowledge and, and accept the depth of the problem. Same is true if you're, if you're grieving, if you're struggling with the, uh, the effects of, of death in your, in your own life, the loss of a loved one, a close friend, right? It's completely insincere and profoundly unhelpful to pretend like it doesn't hurt, to just skip over the darkness. No, you have to feel the weight of it. Okay, now you say, all right, that fe- this is feeling more like a Good Friday service, right? right? Let me have it. Depress me. This is why I came. I mean, is this it? Is this where we stop? Is this, is this the end? Is this the end of Rooney? Are we done? Are we finished right here? Is this it? No. The Bible wants us to feel the weight of the moment, but if you read the gospel accounts, you see that the gospel accounts never attempt to hide the ending, and neither does it make you wait for it, right? It doesn't make you wait until Sunday to see the light. You can see it right here. Now, it'll be more brilliant on Sunday. I want you to come back, right? Check out that brightness of the light, but it's not absent here. Right? So I want, you to, I, want you to, I want you to acknowledge the darkness, but second thing, I want you to see the light. In, um, in Darkest Hour, in the movie, the cinema, cinematographer sets the film basically in darkness. Now, that's not hard to do when it's set in London because it's kind of raining all the time and, and stuff. But, but in Luke's account of the crucifixion, 
He makes darkness a central theme, almost a, almost a character, right? I mean, that's all the gospel writers do that mention this three hours of darkness. It's almost as if the darkness becomes a character. Well, in, in, in Darkest Hour, in the movie, it's almost as if the, the darkness is a character. And in the climactic scene, the big speech by Churchill to the, Church of Common, uh, the House of Commons at the end, right, the whole room is dark except for this ray of sunshine that's coming down on the desk right in front of the prime minister as he's speaking. Right? It's not an accident. Right? The director did that on purpose. Now, what happens here at the end of Luke 23, not despite the darkness, light not despite the darkness, light in the darkness. And I want to show it to you in two pieces. I want you to see the light in the curtain, and I want you to see it in the characters. All right, first the curtain. Did you see this thing about the curtain? What's this deal with the line in verse 45? Look at what it says. The sun's light failed, right? Kind of talking about the darkness. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now Luke just leaves it there, right? He kind of moves on. But his readers would have known that it was a huge deal. Because if it wasn't a huge deal, why bring it up at all? Because if this was just some sort of like drapery mishap in the temple, right? Then this kind of seems like an odd place to insert the comment here. No, it's a very big deal. The curtain of the temple was this humongous woven fabric, 30 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and it was thick, right? This wasn't like a shower curtain. This was, it was about an inch thick, about the, the width of a man's hand. And, 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 and it was hung in the place in the temple, a very strategic place. It separated what was called the, the most holy place, the holy of holies, from the rest of the temple. Now, the room outside of the most holy place was also very special. It was called the holy place. So you had the most holy place and you had the holy place, right? Now, the holy place was holy and the priests did their work and stuff there, but the most holy place, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? And it was strictly off limits, except for once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go in to offer special sacrifice for the sin of the people. But it was a very nerve-wracking thing for the high priest to do this, Right? He was entering into the presence of a holy God, and he needed to make sure that he was entering with the blood of a pure sacrifice, not just for the sins of the people, but for his sin as well. Well, Luke is telling us that as darkness hung over the earth, and Jesus breathes his last, at Jesus' death, the curtain is torn. Matthew and Mark tell us, torn in two, top to bottom. Why? What does this mean? Why bring it up? Why now this curtain that, that kept people separated from the presence of God in the most holy place, why is it now torn in two? Because the path to God's presence is now open. The ultimate sacrifice had been made. The purest of sacrifices, the Lamb of God, a final atonement that rendered the priestly ritual unnecessary from that moment on. Access to the presence of God, not just for the high priest now, for everyone. And they didn't have to wait until Sunday to get it at that moment. Which is where we see the light in these characters as well. See, the curtain splits, but you don't have to wait till Sunday to get the access. Look at these characters. Right? We talked about the thief on the cross if you were here on Sunday, how, how he recognized his own guilt, right? See, got to acknowledge the darkness. I'm there. He did. But then what did Jesus say to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, there's other characters here as well. Look at the Roman centurion. He's in verse 47. At the moment of Jesus' death, it says, He praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. 
Mark tells us that he confesses that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, this is really radical. Only the Roman emperor (laughs) could be called a Son of God. And it really wasn't his place, to be perfectly honest, to be giving an opinion on the guilt or innocence of the victim. That was kind of above his pay grade. Right? His job was to carry out the orders that were given to him. Execute the guy. Execute him. Right? Not your job to judge. Is he innocent? Is he not innocent? But he doesn't seem to care. What changed him? Mark tells us that he watched how Jesus breathed his last. In other words, he watched him die. Now, this guy's a Roman centurion. And a Roman centurion who is assigned to the execution detail. Right? He's seen death before. He's around dying people all the time. He's the cause of their death. Right? You can't accuse him of just having like an emotional sympathetic moment here. Yet there must have been something about the way Jesus died that became the occasion for his confession. Something different about his death. And for our purposes, note something. It isn't the resurrection of Jesus that causes this centurion to cry out that Jesus is the innocent son of God. It's his death. Light in the darkness. Another character, Joseph of Arimathea. Right, we're introduced to him in verse 50. Who's this guy? Well, he's one of the religious leaders. That's pretty wild. A member of the council. This was a prominent guy. And he goes to the Roman governor and he asks if he could have Jesus' body to give it a proper burial. Now, this is incredibly bold. Jesus had just been publicly executed under the charge of treason. And here is this very prominent, well-respected leader coming and claiming the body and saying, yeah, you know the criminal that you just executed for insurrection against the empire? I'm with him. Most of Jesus' disciples had run away. Peter had been directly asked the question three times, are you with him? Three times. His answer was, I'm not with him. And here is this man of extreme prominence risking his reputation, even his life, by identifying himself with Jesus. And this was messy work too, right? That's true for any dead body, it's messy work. But do a little research on what happened to the body in a Roman crucifixion, right? This would have been a mess to deal with, a mangled corpse. He didn't wait to embrace Jesus' body all cleaned up after the resurrection. He embraced literally the dead one. It was menial work, right? Not befitting a leader of his of his prominence. This was the job for the women. Speaking of which, they're the last of the characters, and they too are hanging around. Now, we'll talk more about the women on Sunday, so I won't say too much now, but suffice it to say that while the male disciples were hiding at this point and wouldn't come out until the resurrection, the women, like Joseph of Arimathea, were willing to identify themselves with Jesus at his death. They were there. Now, if you take all of this together, you see how this is real light. Because it means for you, if you're here tonight and you're wondering about this Jesus, or if you're struggling with darkness in your own life right now, you don't have to wait to Sunday to see the light after the darkness. I mean, I'd encourage you to do that. Again, come back on Sunday, because the light after the darkness is brilliant. But you can start right now by seeing what happened to the curtain, by watching how Jesus' death, even before his resurrection, affected these people. You can start right now by seeing the light in the darkness. And check this out, too. Did you see? Look at these characters. It doesn't matter where you're from. 
It doesn't doesn't matter what your your social status is in order to receive this light in in the darkness because you've got the full spectrum of people identifying with Jesus here in his death. You got the law-breaking criminal. He's the one hanging on the cross. You got the law-enforcing centurion. He's the one who's carrying out the sentence. You got prominent men like Joseph. You've got lowly women, the very bad criminal and the very good Pharisee, the very strong centurion, the very weak women. They're all coming to Jesus and all have access today, this day, Good Friday, to the paradise of God through the death of this man. Now, one last thing about Jesus. I want you to acknowledge the darkness. I want you to see the light. But finally, I want you to behold the glory. And specifically, behold His glory. That is the glory of God. The glory display doesn't wait for Easter Sunday morning. The cross is not primarily about us. It is primarily about the glory of God. There is no other place where we see the full majesty of God's holiness and God's justice on the one hand. And God's mercy and God's love on the other hand. Where we see them both fully on display at the same time. Right? Throughout the Bible, up to this point, you'd be able to demonstrate very clearly that God is a God of holiness and a God of justice. Right? He cares about sin. He, he, he punishes sin. He, he, he defends and he protects his holiness. You'd also be able to demonstrate that God is a God of mercy and a, and a, and a God of love. Right? He, he rescues his people from his enemies over and over again. He remains faithful to them when they're unfaithful to him. He gives them the promised land. He he, he sends leaders and he, and he sends prophets to, to teach them. And so if you're asked, is God a God of holiness and justice or is he a God of mercy and love? Well, you're able to say, well, well, he's both. And up to this point in the telling of redemptive history, you'd have lots of verses and passages that would demonstrate each of those things. But except for maybe prefigured in the sacrificial system, you don't get a clear view of both of them together until right here at the cross, at the death of Jesus, when both of those things are on full display. The justice of God clearly on display. Jesus suffering the darkness on our behalf. And we must realize the seriousness with which God takes sin. You can't look at the cross and conclude that God doesn't take sin seriously. And yet, seeing the very same Jesus experiencing the darkness on our behalf shows us the love and the mercy of God more than anything else possibly could. You can't look at the cross and conclude that God doesn't love you. Right? Was it for crimes that I have done, he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Right? How much does God care about sin? This much. How much does God love us? This much. How do we know the extent of God's holiness? Look at the death of Jesus. How do you know the extent of God's love? Look at the death of Jesus. It is the ultimate display of God's glory. It doesn't make much of you. It makes very much of Jesus. You know that that movie about Churchill, it's called Darkest Hour. But Churchill probably never used that phrase, at least during the war, to describe that period of British history. Now, historians would later use the phrase, even Churchill, in retrospect, writing after the war, would look back at that time in British history and, and call it a dark hour for, for Britain, but, but Churchill never used the phrase at the time. In fact, the phrase he did use at the time, a phrase that he said he hoped would be the phrase that would be used by history to describe that hour of British history, is not the darkest hour. You know what it was? 
the finest hour. Speech, June 18, 1940. He paints a dark picture of what the world would look like if the Nazi armies uh, win and, and, and all of Europe and the world falls under their control. And he concludes the end of the speech by saying, let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. And that's how we remember it. The finest hour. Seen in the darkest hour. Now, Great Britain, of course, continues, but it is an empire no more. And that's true of every great empire, Roman Empire, British Empire. They all come to an end. But there is a thousand-year reign that the Bible says will surely endure. I won't debate with you now whether it's a literal thousand years and when exactly it starts. But in the book of Revelation, we know that however long it is and whenever it starts, the angels will still be looking back at the end of that thousand years at this dark hour on this Friday in the Roman province of Judea. Because in Revelation chapter 5, it says that at the last day, there will be a multitude of creatures and angels surrounding the throne of God and saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That lamb is Jesus. And he's worthy, they say, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why? What's the one thing that they mention about this lamb? His death. He's the one who was slain, and therefore he is worthy of honor and glory. The death of Jesus, it is most certainly a dark hour. But for this to be the response from the angel, it must have been a pretty fine hour too. Because the angels don't just see the light that will come after the darkness. The angels see the light in the darkness, and so should we. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on what you've done. And we pray, Lord, that in the midst of our own darkness, and I don't know the darkness that everyone may be experiencing here in this room tonight, that we would see your light. And that if it is a moment when we can't see anything, where the darkness is so thick it can be felt and it seems to be oppressive, Lord, help us to know that because of what you have done for us, that this darkness will ultimately lift. It will lift because you experienced the darkness through Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so we praise you for that and ask that you would apply it to our hearts. Amen.